Good morning. You survived another daylight savings time. We're glad you're here. This is a good place to be this morning. A friend of mine, Art Alderson, said to me once, I love it when you t share a need that we have at the church. One, so we can pray about it, and two, so we can watch God answer the prayer for that need. I have asked Steve Hawkins to come up here this morning. He serves each Sunday in one of our ministries, and I've asked him to help give us a picture of a need he sees. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, tell us what ministry you serve with each Sunday. So I serve in early childhood. Early childhood. What has made you passionate about serving there? So I have four children, my wife Sarah and I. We have a 21-year-old, a 16-year-old, 10-year-old, and a 4-year-old. Woo! Oh, yeah, if you need... Everybody uh, say, oh, no! <laughs> if you need proof that God has a sense of humor, my four-year-old is it. Yeah. Um, but for me, it was a situation where I began to serve as we opened this church, and I really began to realize what it took behind the scenes mm -hmm. and how much I had taken for granted when my 21-year-old was young and my 16-year-old was young, and really just what that looked like and how much it really takes and entails to come alongside these kids and really just minister to them. I know your team prays and dreams and hopes for young kids and young parents at our church. What's that look like? What, what are you praying for? So really, we just want to come alongside the parents. You know, we really want to reinforce the biblical truths that you guys are teaching them at home and honestly mm -hmm. just develop a real trustworthy relationship with your kids. Yeah. What's keeping your team from really flourishing? So we have a few challenges right now. Uh, our first challenge is we don't want to overrun our current leaders. And when you go from eight kids in a classroom to Two 13, kids on your lap. <laughs> kids and... in a classroom. Peter's <laughs> double-fisted up there. And I think he was bouncing a bouncer at one point as well. But he did pray for that. Um, and so, you know, that's one of our challenges. We don't want our leaders to feel like there's too many kids in a room and they feel like they have to back off. We also have a, a deep need for 8 to 10 consistent leaders at the 845 and the 1030 service, and then an extensive substitution list so that when we have call-outs on Sunday morning for illness or family emergencies, there's people on standby that we can reach out to on a very short notice and say, hey, could you please step into a room and help? Mm -hmm. Thank you for serving, and thank you for giving us a picture of what the need is. If you have a child in early childhood, zero to four, we would love to, for you to stand up. We're going to pray for you. We're going to pray for this need and watch God take care of it. Go ahead and stand up. Thank you. Jesus, we pray for our young children and our young families, especially this morning. There's nothing we want more than for these kids to follow you every day of their life. Lord, would you encourage these parents' hearts? It's hard. And Jesus, we pray that you will bring the people that will show a speck of who you are to these kids each Sunday they come. Thank you for what you're doing and what you're going to continue to do. In your precious name, amen. Good morning. Well, as we gather to worship uh, each week, it's a part of our spiritual formation. It's a rhythm in our spiritual formation. Every chance I get the chance to talk, I just want to pound that in. Um, so thanks for choosing this rhythm uh, weekly because it matters. It's forming us more into the image of Christ. Um, hey, and by the way, we're about a month away from a really special celebration. Can you guess what it is? Easter, yeah. Can you believe that? We're a month out from Easter. Um, but before we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, his victory over sin and death, and our resurrection with him, all that good news, it's good for us to, to remember the sacrifice, to remember what it took, what he laid down, his life for us. Um, and so Palm Sunday... The week before Easter, we're going to do that through a service called Tenebrae. And if you've been around fellowship for a while, you've probably experienced this at some point. And it's a really meaningful, powerful, rich experience of reflecting on the life and death of Christ. And so uh, this, that morning, things are going to kind of start in the dark. So I encourage you to get here early. 
Um, and then we're going to light candles as we just see uh, the light of Christ um, expand across as he, as he enters into the world and into his ministry, uh, sharing the good news and healing the sick, all of that. And then we'll actually start extinguishing candles um, as he's making his way to the cross. And so we're going to celebrate through story and reflection and music that day. Um, and here's my ask. Maybe you sat out there or you sat out there and sung with us on a Sunday and you thought, maybe I might want to get involved in that worship choir that I see up there every once in a while. Well, this is the time to do it. I would love to have a big choir for this day um, because it brings a lot to that experience. And so if, you're, if that's you, if you're thinking that right now, or if your heart started comp- pumping a little faster, uh, or maybe you're sitting next to someone that deserves an elbow right now, go ahead, feel free. Um, just email me, uh, or you can come up after the service and talk with me. I'd love to get you signed up for that. Okay, one last thing before we jump in. I wanted to draw attention to our Spectra Arts Ministry. This is a visual arts ministry uh, for visual artists among us. And so if that's you, this is a community that you can join uh, that encourages you. And uh, yeah, it's just community for you and can help give you vision for how to worship through your craft. And so um, we would love to have you join us in that. Um, Again, uh, contact us um, through that email or you can come talk to me. Uh, Also, you've probably noticed out in the foyer, some of our Spectra artists have shared art pieces that they've made for this series that you can go and take in uh, at your leisure. So um, take advantage of that. Okay, let's worship together. Would you stand with me? And as we enter in to this time of worship through singing and the word, um, let's bring our attention to God. Every time we gather, we come to worship, not to just sing songs. It's two different things. And Jesus, what did he tell us? He told us that we, were come, we, we are to come to worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does that leave out? Nothing. So we bring our whole selves to worship. So I want to invite you to do that as we pray this prayer together. Pray with me. And so we are gathered here uniquely in all of history. Take that in. This moment, today, we particular people in this singular time and place, accomplish your purposes among us, O oh God. Tune our hearts to the voice of your spirit. Wake us to be present to you and to one another in this shared hour we are given. For it is you, O Lord, who have so gathered us from our various places, and you alone who know our hearts and our needs. Breathe upon our gathering, O Spirit of God. Oh, Father, enlarge our hearts. Oh, Spirit, expand our vision. Oh, Christ, establish your kingdom among us. Be at work even now, oh, Lord. May your will in us in this hour be accomplished.
that together again. Let's pray all this together. Uh, this is our offering prayer. Oh, Father, giver of all, every good and perfect gift comes from you. We ask you to accept these gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, and hope to the hopeless. As you multiply the offering of fish and loaves, multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely and not under compulsion, for all we have is yours, Lord. Nothing we can give could match your great gifts to us, your Son and your Spirit.
we stand in you, Jesus. We stand for you. We stand because of you. We stand through you. So we love you. We love you because you have first loved us and made us stand. It's a joy to simply stand in your presence and then to ask you to go one step further to teach us. So our hearts are listening, our ears are listening, our lives are open. Teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. So good to see you. Fellowship Benville got to have its first sunrise service this morning in the first hour. I'm so sorry you missed it. I don't know if some of you didn't. You're saying, Mark, we were serving that hour. Believe me, we didn't miss it. And some of you, I'm thinking, I recognize you from the first hour. So good to have you visit us in the second hour as well. Hey, context always gives understanding, always does. In fact, every student of history knows that, that if you don't understand the context of something, it's just easy to jump to conclusions. So, for example, imagine today that an alien arrived, arrived in my neighborhood and chose to visit my home. That alien if they didn't have an understanding of context, would jump to the conclusion that my dog is actually the ruler of my house because the dog is the only one who eats out of a silver dish, right? The dog is the only one where the whole family stands up to let it in and out over and over and over again. The dog is the only one who leads my wife around the city of Bentonville by a rope while she carries a little plastic bag to pick up the waste. An alien would rightly say the dog rules. In fact, if the alien went further and started reading correspondence between Lisa and I, if they came across our text messages, they would think, well, this couple has a pretty transactional relationship. It's just filled with lots of abbreviated instructions on who goes where, when, and what. But then if they went and started reading our cards and notes to each other, they might go, well, we think something's going on here with this couple. Yeah, context will always give you understanding. And so it is with the book of Daniel, particularly in the passage that we find ourselves. We begin in Daniel chapter 10, verse 1 in this series. And Daniel chapter 10, verse 1 says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that tells us the time frame, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true and it concerned a great war. So now we have the context of the events. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. Now we have the context of the kind of message or the kind of writing that's in front of us. It's the future of a particular people who's going to walk through a season, an extended season of conflict, great war. And the context will come to us uh, in a a, a kind of writing called apocalyptic literature. Apocalypse, it just means revelation, revelation particularly revelation of future events. And so this apocalyptic literature is typically filled with more symbolism, more figures of speech, and it's telling us about the events that are happening to a particular group of people, the nation of Israel. Daniel continues in verse 2. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. Okay, that 21 days is going to become important. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, And I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the banks of the great river, the Tigris. Let's pause there. What we're going to see in front of us in Daniel chapter 10 all the way through chapter 12 is one very long vision. And uh, in this very long vision, it's going to give us a description, starting off here, that it comes out of Daniel's season of of intensified fasting and prayer. And he's fasting and and praying because he's mourning. What triggers the grief in his life that causes him to mourn? Well, it's the fact that he knows that the 70 years of Babylonian captivity for the Jews is coming to a close. Now, you would think he'd be all celebration except for two realities. And you who have gone through loss and we who have gone through loss know these realities, which is, number one, you still always mourn the loss that you have suffered. And number two, he's mourning the fact that there is still pain uh, that they're walking through. 
He's grieving over that. And he has these questions in his mind, Lord, how long will this last? And will you remember your people and your promises? Now verse 5. In the middle of that grieving, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. Now, do you recall reading in the Bible a description like this? Yeah, it might, for those who are familiar with the New Testament, bring to mind a description that's found in the book of Revelation, where the Apostle John sees Jesus described in a similar way. And because the, the, the similarities are pretty close, it's caused some to say, clearly this is a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ, so before Jesus came and took up his body at the incarnation. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know, though, because we're going to read here in a little bit that this being, this heavenly being, struggles with a demon for 21 days. And the Jesus I meet in the New Testament, he does not struggle with demons. He casts them out or shuts them up. And so I think we actually have a heavenly being here, a heavenly angelic being. And this angel speaks to Daniel in verse 11. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, Consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you, and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Now, I have come to explain to you, notice its context, what will happen to your people, who's his people? Israel, the Jews. What will happen to your people in the future? For the vision concerns a time yet to come. We are going to see chapter 10 through 12 tell of Israel's future events. It's going to have a near-term future and then a really far-term distant future. Now, near-term, again, you have to remember context. When we in the United States think near-term, our country is only 200 years old, we're thinking near-term is 25 to 40 years, right? Don't forget, this is Israel. Thousands of years of history. Near-term is the next 400 years. Distant is the events that will happen at the end of time, at the end of human history. This is one large chunk of Scripture. We cannot go through it verse by verse. You know by now that I am a wordy man, even on short passages assigned to me. So in this one, we are going to kind of summarize chunks and drop into portions that hopefully will help us get an understanding of the whole vision. This is how we could frame Daniel's vision in chapter 10 through 12. He's going to give us the content of the vision, the what. He's going to give us the why behind it, what's going on behind the scenes. And he's going to tell us the when or the, the how long. Let's start with the what and see the, the meat of it, starting in chapter 11 together. Chapter 11 and a little bit of chapter 12 tell us the events of the next 400 years. And they look like this on a timeline. It's Daniel's vision is incredibly detailed and incredibly specific about Jewish history, what we call Jewish history. It would have been prophecy from Daniel's point of view. Uh, Israel was ruled by different kings and kingdoms. In fact, if you want a detailed list of those kings and kingdoms, I think it's page 80 in your study guide, gives you all of them, which king to which verse. Some of them came by force and overtook militarily. Some of them overtook by cunning and political marriage. All of that gets forecasted in prophecy to detail. The overview of the chapter is that the Jews will experience four more Persian kings for those who are still remaining in Babylonian area. It finishes up with King Xerxes. And then a Greek king will come and take over Persia. And we know him now as Alexander the Great. He rules for a short time, dies young, and his kingdom is divided into four. Two of those four kings rise up and become particularly troublesome for Israel. Uh, it's the, the Seleucids from Syria and the Ptolemies from Egypt. They go back and forth for the next 160 years and battle for Israel. And they end with the worst of the worst leader 
man we'll look at in a minute called Antiochus Epiphanes. But in the middle of this vision in chapter 11, the angel will say this to Daniel. He will say, the invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. Now, if you're walking through 400 years of this kind of war-torn conflict, can you picture in your minds the desolation you see in the Ukraine right now? And you see the suffering that people go through day in and day out. Extend that to four centuries. It would be easy, if you were a Jewish man or woman, to start thinking, we live in a God-forsaken land, meaning God has turned his back on his promises to us. But right here in the prediction of that troubled time is embedded the true noun of Israel, the beautiful land. She's not God-forsaken. She's not just war-torn. She's the beautiful land with a people who have a future. But it does cause you to ask, what is it about Israel as a place and as a people group uh, that causes them to experience such unusual amounts of conflict for thousands of years? Because it's unlike any other nation. What makes Israel so desirable that other countries are constantly trying to conquer her? Maybe this map will help. You see in this map, first of all, Israel is called the beautiful land because it's just, it's just beautiful there. But they have the Seleucids to the north in Syria, the Ptolemies to the south in Egypt, and Israel is that small country in red in the middle. It's about the size and shape of New Jersey. Israel lies at the heart of an area that if you remember back to high school world history, it was called the Fertile Crescent. It was called the Fertile Crescent because the Tigris, the Euphrates, and the Mediterranean Sea all were in that region as a result in that much grander area of the Middle East that's arid. This one crescent-shaped piece was incredibly fertile, rich with vegetation, food sources. Israel sits in the middle of the Fertile Crescent. Think of it as a bridge, a bridge from north to south, a bridge from east to west. And so if you want to trade, you must go through a place you can resupply and rewater. You've got to go through the bridge of Israel. If you want to move your troops, you've got to go through a place where you can resupply them and rewater. You need that fertile crescent bridge that we now call Israel. No, don't you see? God knew exactly what he was doing when he picked a chosen people to reside exactly in that location. He knew that all of the ancient civilizations of the known world would move east to west and north to south right through that people group. Was he picking on them? Oh, no. He was using them for grand redemptive purposes. They were to be a light to all of the Gentile nations. And God was going to make it easy to be a light. He was going to bring the Gentile nations through them for trade and for movement. Yeah, they are perfectly positioned. And as a result... Israel is also kicked around like a political football, particularly by the Seleucids and the, the Ptolemies. In fact, in my opinion, I think one of God's current visible miracles on planet Earth is the fact that the nation of Israel is not just still surviving, but it's thriving, even though it's a tiny little nation of less than 10 million people. Folks, we have massive superpowers who the only remnants we have of them on earth is that their stuff, their remnants and relics are in museums all over the world. Israel, she still survives and thrives because God has put her at the epicenter of his earthly activity in history. Hey, side note. Next spring, Lisa and I will be leading a, a tour of Israel. And if you would like to jump in, we would love to invite you. And all you need to do is send a an email to that address, Israel at fellowshipnwa.org, and we'll shoot a link back to you. Uh, it'll be a trip of a lifetime that'll open your eyes, but it'll also be way more fun than any of us deserve to have at the same time. And so if that intrigues you, reach out, and we'll reach back out. Let's go back to the Bible, though. Chapter 11. Chapter 11, particularly for the first 20 uh, verses, it, it moves at this pace. King, 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 king. North, south, north, south, north, south, north, south. And then from 21 to 45, it moves at this pace. 
and it slows down around one king named Antiochus Epiphanes IV, a brutal tyrant who rolled into Jerusalem in ways that uh, were more violent than any other. He was such a mocker of God and of the Jewish people that if you followed God's law, persecution led to death. He wanted to make his point that he was God, so he sets up an idol to Zeus in the temple and sacrifices a pig on it. Yeah, he was the foreshadowing of some of the darkest days that Israel experienced. But at the same time, the last half of the description of Antiochus Epiphanes seems to describe a future king, someone that Antiochus didn't quite fulfill all of those things. This is an Antiochus Epiphanes-like king, a ruler who thinks he's like God, who will come at the end of time. In fact, it's uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, where Jesus talks about this prophecy we're looking at in Daniel. And he describes that as still something that will be coming at the end of time. So in some ways, Antiochus Epiphanes, all of that prophecy by Daniel was fulfilled about 160 years before Jesus was born. But in other ways, other parts have not been fulfilled until the end times. In fact, the scriptures often do that at times. I'll back it up one. There we go. Do you see like a mountain range? Sometimes when you stand in front of the Rockies, you'll look at two mountains and they seem to be touching each other. And yet when you fly over them in an airplane, you'll look back at, down at huge gaps between those two mountains. So it is with kind of double fulfillment of prophecy. It has happened with Antiochus, but yet it is still to come with a future king that goes by several different names. There we are. We saw him in Daniel chapter 7. He was the little horn on the goat, that little horn with a big attitude. In chapter 9, Doug will talk about him as the ruler. Uh, Paul calls him in 2 Thessalonians the, king, the man of lawlessness. John calls him the Antichrist. And in the, the book of Revelation, he's known as the beast. Daniel's prophecy of this ruler, this Antichrist, tells us something about our current reality. And that is... The kingdom of hell clashes with the kingdom of heaven in a beautiful land called earth, and particularly epicentered in a beautiful land called Israel. That's the what of this vision. Why does it happen? We'll look at that. By the way, if you notice any time you suffer, the same questions Daniel deals with in his prophecy, we tend to ask, Lord, why is this happening? Lord, how long will it happen? We'll continue it. Well, Daniel's going to deal with those questions. Let's look at the why. And it begins back in verse 10, where we left off in chapter 10, verse 11. The angel said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. And then he continued. This is where we left off. Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. We'll pause. What words was Daniel saying? Prayer. He was humbly seeking God in prayer. And he says, and I have come in response to what? To them. I've come now in response to your prayers. Does that elevate your vision of prayer? Spiritual warfare. Moving in partnership in God's choice, even through our prayers. Verse 13, but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief priests, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. He goes on in verse 20. So he said, do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. Okay, wait a minute. Where are we here? In chapter 11, there were a lot of kings battling back and forth, south to north, south to north. Now, behind the scenes, we're seeing that there are princes who are over these kings. These princes describe angelic beings. Some, like Michael, 
are angelic beings who obey God, do his will, and advance his kingdom. Some are demonic angelic beings. Two of them actually get named here. Prince of Persia and the Prince of Greece. We are getting a peek behind the heavenly curtain. And I know that our world's passing show, so the curtain is closed, we can't see the heavenlies, and my goodness, on the earthly side, there's a lot going on. And I can get so distracted, I can think this is all there is. And here, the gift of the Bible is an opening of the curtain and a peek behind in the spiritual world and getting a chance to see how the spiritual world and the human world actually interact with each other. And this peak of the curtain shows us at least three things. Maybe you see more than three, but I see three. Number one, it shows me that demonic forces are at play in world events and in world leaders and in world governments. You actually see a demonic being assigned to this kingdom of Persia in one degree. The second thing I see is that there's a spiritual struggle between angels and demons. They're actually battling each other, and it has earthly consequences. It actually delayed this angel from coming to Daniel for 21 days. And third, it shows me that prayer is one way that we participate in this spiritual battle. I do not think you can come to the conclusion that it's a coincidence that Daniel was praying and fasting for 21 days and this spiritual battle was taking place while an angelic being was coming to assist him. Yeah, we get invited into this. And maybe on this Daylight Saving Times morning, you're going, wow, I needed that extra hour of sleep before we go there. I don't think much about the spiritual world other than just me and my relationship with God. And some are inclined to say, oh, I'd like to believe that there are angels. But I don't think much about the demonic world and spiritual battle. C.S. Lewis observed in his book, The Screwtape Letters, I think C.S. Lewis is one of the greatest intellects of the last hundred years. But he said this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. And they'll hail a materialist, or a magician with the same delight. Now, what we need to do is to see correctly. Because if we see correctly, we begin to walk with a different kind of confidence, but at the same time, sober-mindedness. Life is more than what we see with our eyes. It's more than what we can touch with our hands. There is a spiritual world, and we have been invited to be part of it. And so we live among spiritual beings who actually engage in our physical and material world. That's not just a glimpse out of Daniel. That's New Testament teaching as well. In fact, 1 John chapter 5, the Apostle John says, we know, we as believers know two things. Number one, that we are from God. Number two, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So that means that the spiritually alert, um, eyes wide open Christian. By the way, anytime you read in the Bible the word sober-minded, it means eyes wide open. We're not drowsy and dropping off to sleep. When we are that spiritually alert, we are not surprised when we see the educational system or the entertainment industry or the political system, or even a business culture that looks opposed to the vision that God has for life. That doesn't surprise us because we know two things, that we are spiritually born of God and he has rights to our life and we walk this earth in an earth that is already under the sway or driving under the influence of the evil one. We, as we wise wide open, see life for what it is. We know that it's spiritual battle, but we're not frightened because we also see God for who he is, and we see ourselves for who we are in the the middle of that. So our eyes are open, but they are not open in terror. In fact, Ephesians chapter 6, Paul teaches spiritual battle this way. 
He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Okay, how would I do that? Well, put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Don't you see how much this tells us about spiritual battle? It first of all tells us where our battle is and where it is not. If you're married, you can reach over right now and touch your spouse's hand. You probably feel flesh and blood. They're not your battle. There is a battle. Someone in your community group who you feel frustrated with or at odds with, your temptation is to think that's where my conflict lies. No, no, no. There's a greater conflict. We've got to be wise enough to be tuned in. We know that there are schemes of the devil at play. That's the word that's used there, schemes. Get out of your mind that the devil likes to roar around committing random acts of evil. He's not random. He's very intentional with a scheme and a strategy. In other words, he's got a game plan, and he's running his playbook. And we can stand against that by putting on the full armor of God and taking up the spiritual resources that we have in Jesus Christ. Again, this vision of, of spiritual battle, it, it makes us sober-minded so our eyes are open, but at the same time, we're at peace and we rest. We can even have joy and strength. That's what the angel says to Daniel in chapter 10, verse 18 and 19. The angel goes on to Daniel and says, Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, you who are highly esteemed, he said. Peace. Be strong now. Reminder. Be strong. When he spoke spoke to me, I was strengthened. And I said, speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. Don't you see peace, strength, courage in the middle of the spiritual battle, not after it's all over. This is how we walk supernaturally in a world that is still bent away from God and under the influence of the demonic. This lets us see the why behind the what that goes on in our earthly conflicts. We see real spiritual battles. They bring real results on planet Earth. But we're not afraid because the battle is not unending. And that's where we answer that third question. How long in chapter 12? Is this unending and is this all that there is in life? And it gets answered in the text in chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince, at that time, by the way, that that time is the end of the age what we would sometimes call the end times. Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until now. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Hey, we are people of Easter. What do we call it when multitudes of people who sleep in the earth awake? Resurrection. So he's talking about the resurrection that comes at the end of the age. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You see how the angel describes the end times? It's not just a time of battle and chaos. It is a time of intense battle and warfare. But it also is a time where God is protecting his people and secondly, delivering his people. Which tells me that what God writes in his book of life can never be erased by man or by demons. And the wise, open-eyed believer knows that they'll shine like stars through the dark night. The angel continues on in verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on the bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the, living, of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? We ask the same question when we're in conflict. 
How long? How much longer, Lord? And here's the answer. The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the, of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand towards heaven. By the way, that would be a very Jewish way of, of, of double swearing, stronger than a pinky promise, okay? Double swearing. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever. Who's that? Yahweh, God. Saying, it will be for a time, times, and half a time. I told you apocalyptic literature uses a lot of symbolism. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. How long will it last? A time, times, half a time. We can read it as a year, two years, and half a year. And now Daniel is talking about the same exact three and a half years of the great tribulation that we see in the book of Revelation at the end time. A time that Jesus said is unlike any other on planet earth. And Jesus, he's just not prone to exaggerating. He knows this will be a unique, painful chapter in human history. But it will come to an end. In fact, what we see about uh, anytime you can count something to three and a half years, well, you know that there's bookends on that time period, right? Who put the bookends there? Who puts his hands around that time and says no more? Yahweh does. And because he's determined it and counted it, it tells us that spiritual conflict is not unending. It has a season where it will come to a close. When spiritual battles come to a close, he says all these things will be completed, meaning all rights will be, uh, all wrongs will be righted. All suffering will end. In fact, when you read the scriptures and you read descriptions of the eternal kingdom of God, the words describing it are this, justice, righteousness, peace, joy, and love. Distinctly absent in the eternal kingdom is words like conflict, strife, battle, demonic struggle. No, all of that is completed. And then we end up with chapter 12, verse 13. As for you, go your way till the end, Daniel. You will rest, and then at the end of days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Folks, this is the last verse in the book of Daniel. And he's telling Daniel, go your way. That's a saying that means um, live your life. Get back to business. Walk the walk. Talk the talk. Stay the course. I've got two promises for you, Daniel. You will rest. There will be a day you lay your head down and die as well. But you will rise. And that gives Daniel hope for his tomorrow. And every believer in Jesus Christ has the same hope. You will rest. You will rise. In a few weeks, we celebrate Easter. I do not know what the Easter sermon will be. But I'm on a hunch you'll see two things. You will rest and you will rise. Because that is our hope as well. Regardless of the darkness or the light of the days, you will rest and you will rise. That's not just hope for tomorrow. We have hope for today. The Apostle John in 1 John 4 says, little children, don't forget, you are from God and have overcome them, the spiritual forces of darkness. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's hope for today. You will rest and you will rise. There's your hope for tomorrow. In the meantime, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And you, can walk with him with overcoming power. Spiritual battle? Yeah, it's our reality. But it's just not our terror. It's temporary. And we get to join in what God is doing temporarily through our prayer, through our faith, and through our hope. Let's pray. Rather than me just praying a prayer over you, would you ask now to the Holy Spirit who loves you with more passion than you can imagine, Lord, how do you want me to apply this truth about spiritual battle and the hope I have?
Where have I been living in denial or in terror or not participating? Where are you encouraging me to just continue participating and walking by faith and hope?
story ends. story and sing it.
Are you experiencing the rest part? Before the rise? I experienced the rest at the end of this service. I'm grateful for it. Resting in the spirit, resting in confidence that he is with us. The battle is already won, but he's calling us to keep entering in, to keep walking with him and fighting that battle with him. So um, thanks for that message, Mark. It was powerful. And uh, if you have any, any prayer requests, any prayer needs, uh, Gordon and Colleen are up here um, on my right, your left. They would be honored to pray with you. I really want to encourage you to take advantage of that when it, when it strikes. Uh, also, any of us up here on the stage, we would love to pray with you as well if you want to come. Um, other than that, y'all have a blessed week. Uh, we love you so much. Go in peace.